Thank you for joining us today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that the vast majority of we humans are friendly tribal animals. And when we live in small enough communities, in which we know each person by name or at minimum by face, we're collaborative enough to sustain everyone with the bare essentials of nutritious food, warm shelter, health care, and education provided with dignity, respect, kindness, and love. Typically, before I conduct the interview of the day, I expound on news and notes in psychology, medicine, and politics. I bring you warnings about interactions between SSRIs, the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, the neurotransmitters. I believe you give you these warnings between these SSRIs and birth control, as described by Dr. Julie Holland in her book, Moody Bitches. Or I bring you commentaries on how leadership hypocrisy undermines faith in our country. But I'm going to skip news and notes today because our guest, Dr. Michael Krasny, is himself news and notes. Listen to Michael interview world leaders, and you'll hear about the most important topics in our country and around the world. Listen to Michael about literature, and you'll delight at the smorgasbord as he brings you Chekhov's The Woman with the Dog or Baldwin's Sunny Blues. You can hear about T.S. Eliot or Sam Harris. Michael asked me to read his book, Spiritual Envy, for this interview. Uh, Quite an assignment. Even if the subject matter of a man's search for meaning and values and their relationship to agnosticism and atheism is not of interest to you, there's another good reason to buy the book and read it. Go page by page, write down the authors he references. If you do this and read the books by each of the authors... You'll be a learned person. It's quite a book. Last week, you may recall, for those of you who listened, that I had the privilege of interviewing one of my two inspirations for this program, Dr. Dean Adele. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my other radio hero, the inimitable and distinguished Dr. Michael Krasny. I met Michael about 30 years ago when both of our daughters attended the same grammar school in Marin County. After meeting him and getting a sense of what his values were, I listened to his program and became a fan. Sometime later, I had the good fortune of Michael's interviewing me on his already famous radio program, Forum, on KQED in the Bay Area. The main topic of the interview was a pioneering chemical dependence program that I started called Cokeender's Alcohol and Drug Program. The program was so different from anything else that existed in the United States that it made national television news, which led to my invitation on Michael's program. 
I can tell you that I hardly needed my 25 years of interviewing experience as a clinical psychology to recognize Michael's mastery. He projected warmth, sincerity, humor, agility, and a, a phenomenal memory enough to make any three elephants jealous, all combined into a down-home delivery. With Dean Adele and Dr. Michael Krasny leading the way, I was inspired to begin my own radio program in the Bay Area sometime thereafter. Bay Area listeners, especially of NPR, they know Michael Krasny well. His broadcasting career began in the late 1970s as host of a weekly program on KTIM-FM, a small Marin County rock station. In 1983, he transitioned to ABC San Francisco, working at KGO-AM and on local TV. He joined KQED in 1993 as host of Forum, the award-winning daily call-in radio program that addresses local and national news, politics, culture, health, public affairs, arts, and science. He remains a veteran interviewer for the nationally broadcast City Arts and Lectures and has worked for many years as host of one of ABC's highest-rated radio programs. Michael has worked as host of KQED's television programs This Week in Northern California and Civic Space, and he's worked as a substitute host for NPR's Talk of the Nation. Michael received two Emmy nominations for his television work. If that's not enough, in addition to his radio career, Michael has written prolifically, publishing a variety of fiction, literary criticism, and political commentary. He's the author of books, Off Mic, a memoir of talk radio and literary life, Stanford University Press, 2007. Spiritual Envy, he published in 2010, and we're going to be talking about that one today. Let There Be Laughter, a treasury of great Jewish humor and what it all means. Some of you may recall I interviewed Michael about this book some years ago. That was published by William Morrow in 2016. He also co-authored with Maggie Sololik, uh, uh, Sound Ideas with McGraw-Hill. For great interest, Michael released a 24-lecture series DVD, audio, and book on short story masterpieces for the teaching company. This is a must-listen series. Teaching company, easy to find. Check out this series. Michael holds a PhD from the University of Wisconsin. He was born in Cleveland, raised in Cleveland Heights. He's a second-generation American whose grandparents immigrated from Russia and Lithuania and grew up in a Jewish household. Michael lives in Marin County. He's been there about 40 years with his beautiful and very proficient wife, Leslie. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, Michael. Thank you, Richard. I'm always reminded of those long introductions. Uh, I don't deserve it. I have arthritis. I don't deserve that either. But that's... <laughs> I know you, you want to talk about spiritual envy, and we will. And I also want to find out more uh, personally about how you hosted your programs four to five days a week 
taught college during the same period and also became a, a raconteur of Jewish, Jewish humor. But, <laughs> and I also, <laughs> I also want to ask you about your poking fun at Rabbi Schneerson's prostate problem. That was quite a, that was quite a little comment there. So here are my first two questions, Michael. Amongst the challenges facing our country and the world, where do you rank income inequality? And the second part of that question is, during your 40-year career of interviewing many of the world's greatest minds, has anyone presented a reasonable alternative to capitalism? Well, the first question you ask, uh, which is certainly a very provocative question. Uh, I think that income inequality is high up on the list of, of and I mean that globally too. I mean, we have problems in this nation, obviously, with serious gaps in income. We have people who make unbelievable amounts of money and pay very little, if any, taxes. And we have people who are destitute. But when you look at the global picture, when you look at third world countries and uh, the, the way people are living in places like uh, India, which happens to be now undergoing such a severe pandemic hit, uh, or so many of the countries in Africa, uh, income inequality becomes even more stark, uh, as well as including Asia, South America. I mean, just as I said, globally. Um, I don't know that I've had anybody who has ever offered a kind of antidote to what can be better for uh, us economically than capitalism, although I've certainly had, I mean, I've interviewed people like Bernie Sanders and others who uh, follow a fairly socialist creed. Um, it would seem that if you had a smaller nation uh, like Denmark uh, and Norway, as has often been pointed out, you think of the Scandinavian countries, you could have uh, a greater way of perhaps instituting what we think of as a, as a more uh, advanced form of socialism. Uh, not the kind of socialism that has tyranny with it, like the USSR or China, uh, or too many countries, unfortunately, Venezuela. But I think that um, capitalism for the United States uh, needs to have some serious scrutiny and needs to have some serious remedies and, and repair to it. Uh, it's a system that provides a lot of incentive, a lot of drive, uh, has borne a great deal of fruit, so to speak, uh, and accomplishments because of that incentive. But it seems to me that we have, your, your questions are linked really because we have to do better. We have to do better and I don't know that the kind of capitalism we have now, which is not by any means a pure free enterprise system any more than any socialist pure socialism exists, has to be challenged, has to be really at least in some ways seriously repaired. I mean, I asked that question, Michael, because to me, that's the big question that no one seems to have come up with a, a response to or an idea about that we can grasp. And, you know, Fred Hayek, in his book, The Road to Serfdom, virtually crucified socialism to such an extent that, that it, uh, you know, it's now a dirty word uh, for a, a lot of people. And, it, and, and people like Bernie Sanders, you know, get attacked by saying you're a socialist as if, you know, that's a terrible thing. And, and you point out that socialism, you know, gone bad, such as in China, is what Fred Hayek uh, said it would be, which is a totalitarian state. 
So it, it's a it's a tough it's a tough mix how we pull together something that takes care of more. But my concern, and I'm interested in your opinion on it, is uh, our Constitution says that there shall be no nobility. We're not going to pass on titles that bring with it great wealth and great power. Uh, that was in in, in, in situ before our, our country became formed. But don't we, in effect, have nobility? Didn't we create no- nobility by allowing people to amass such great fortunes that they can take care of the next 30 of their generations, if you will, uh, almost infinitely? I mean, once you have many billions of dollars, you, you basically can take care of your, your, your people, your descendants forever. Is this not a form of nobility? Well, I don't know if it's nobility is the right word. In fact, you look at the etymology of nobility and it has a good deal to do with uh, snobbery. Um, there's, um, there's a, certainly a privileged class and a ruling class and a dynasty of wealth in this country. There's no getting around the reality of those uh, things that we live with, uh, those phenomena, if you will. Um, I'm not sure that it's a nobility because certainly the American ideal, the ideal of this republic was not to have an aristocracy, but there there are a couple of aristocracies. I mean, you don't have earls and you don't have dukes and uh, you don't have um, titles, land titles, for example, but you do have families of extraordinary wealth, like you say, who go uh, onto many generations in terms of what they can provide. And uh, that's the reality of what we live with. What can be done about that? Uh, I think that's implicit in the question that you're asking. A lot of people think government control is not necessarily the answer. I mean, we're seeing now with uh, President Biden, for example, and the program to distribute capital, a lot of uh, more conservative uh, leaning folks are saying, you know, this is not allowing people to uh, feel they need to work. Um, you need incentive and capitalism does provide incentive. Um, socialism has problems, as we've said, with tyranny. But the real aristocracy in the United States has been, I think, more of an aristocracy of fame. Edgar Friedenberg had a book on, on that, uh, who's a Canadian who was able to look at us through those eyes and say, uh, those people who are famous uh, are of a different kind of aristocracy. And there's also, in the United States at least, uh, an awareness of if there's a nobility, it's a nobility that goes back to identification with Calvinism and those who have wealth being part of what we call the elect. Those who have the most money are therefore somehow entitled to uh, a, a greater entry into heaven and all the rewards of paradise and eternal life. Um, despite the fact that Calvinism also believed we were preordained to be the decision of whether we were cursed or damned um, or saved. So you've got not necessarily a nobility, but you certainly have, uh, as I say, does Bill Gates represent a nobility of the United States? Uh, Does um, uh, Steve Jobs and his family represent? Of course they do. Uh, There's a nobility there in terms of their identity with power and ruling class and all of the wealth that they amass and all the wealth that isn't taxed. But nobility, I think, needs to be seen in terms of its traditional meaning as well. Uh, You go across the Atlantic and uh, think about what the Puritans fled 
and they fled a lot of that stratified and uh, very strong kind of ruling class that was based on birth and based on genetics, really. The reason that I called the accumulation of massive wealth a form of nobility is because what nobility allowed was the passing on of the title so that just being born into the title entitled one to both a title as well as a huge amount of money and freedom. And with our inheritance laws in this country, we have created a similar situation where people like, as you reference, Gates or Jobs can take care of the next 30 or 40 generations, perhaps, by passing down with the inheritance laws this great amount of wealth so their descendants, just by being born, become, if you will, entitled. Well, that's true. And there is also the privilege that goes with that wealth. Uh, I'm thinking about those who feel that there shouldn't be legacies in universities and people shouldn't automatically be admitted because of the wealth and the buildings that were provided uh, revenue for those buildings by, let's say, someone of this dynastic uh, wealth that we're talking about. It's unfair in the inequitable sense, too, because you have students who want to get into colleges who essentially are not admitted because they're not of the uh, families, the privileged families, and so they don't have that um, plus to get into universities, the best so-called best universities. And there's so many things like that. That's just a metaphor in many ways. Yes, I, it's, I find it very disturbing, but let's move on to something else. You, uh, I, you're quoted as saying that McNamara should be prosecuted for war crimes, correct? Did I get that correct? I said that. In fact, I think I said that to McNamara when I interviewed him, uh, in effect. So do you think Trump should be invited, uh, invited, should he be indicted for crimes against humanity? And I can expound on why I say that. I mean, Dr. Burks, for example, came on television recently and she said that literally hundreds of thousands of people have died because of, she didn't quite say his policy. I think she might have said the administration's policy, that, that if they would have taken a different stance, if they would have, instead of being anti-mask, would have masked up, if they would have protected more people, if they would have moved more quickly, hundreds of thousands might have lived. And, you know, he flaunted the mask. We all know that. What do you think about indicting him? We not only flaunted the mask, he also, in effect, said uh, to Bob Woodward and others, this will go away, and this is something that... Uh, is ephemeral, and it's not, he didn't use that word, but he meant uh, it's not going to last. Uh, he was essentially opposed to a lot of the science of Dr. Birx and Dr. Fauci, and I think that has to be answered. I'm not sure how it can be answered in the courts. It would be a fine idea to uh, hold him culpable uh, and at least try him on that basis. Uh, so that would be at least appropriate with an indictment uh, to be followed by an indictment. I'm not sure what the articles of that indictment would be, but there's certainly culpability there. I mean, in your book, and we're going to move a little bit towards your book now, Spiritual Envy, um, you talk about uh, your belief in retribution, 
you talk about how when that fellow did that uh, that thing to you that he did, uh, which we won't go into, you then, you know, came back at him by uh, doing something to the Harley guy and leaving a note that that it was uh, that other guy who did that, and and you said, uh, you know, that was your way of of uh, evening the score, so to speak, right? Yeah, that was part of what I was trying to define when I wrote that book as a as a code uh, to live by, and I think I was at the t certainly at the time um, taken with those ideas that uh, uh, people should be answerable for their deeds, and they should, in fact, uh, have to pay the piper of consequences. And uh, you know, if one has to be the instrument of uh, making out justice, uh, then one should perhaps take that mantle. It's a lot more complicated ethically than I think we're presenting it now, but uh, yes. I think you got a bit the spirit. You got a bit of the spirit of it. Yeah. Well, but that would certainly then put Trump in that category of someone who should have to pay the piper. There are a lot of pipers that Trump probably has to pay, though, and I think what's happening now in the courts in New York will bear this out. I think he's answerable for um, a great number of, for lack of a better word, I use this word advisedly because remember I wrote a book about agnosticism, but a lot of, uh, of sins um, are what could be characterized as sins, economic, moral, uh, travesties really in many respects. And uh, I think what you're getting at here bears uh, a serious consideration. Uh, how much culpability does Donald Trump have for all of those deaths? Deborah Burks uh, certainly put it on the line, didn't she? Well, she put it on the line in terms of actual deaths. There's also the question of the ongoing, the ongoing work or dirty work that he is doing and stirring up. Um, I mean, you're, you're a person who's been you know, openly uh, Jewish, talking about your Jewish heritage, talking about the meaning of Judaism in your life. And it appears that Trump stirs up anti-Semitism. Does it appear to you that he stirs up anti-Semitism? I think Trump has stirred up a lot that was under rocks, not only anti-Semitism, but racism and misogyny. And I think uh, he's culpable on all those fronts to a great degree. He's also culpable for, uh, in many ways, the insurrection, as it's been called, what happened, you know, in uh, the House of Representatives and the siege that occurred after the election was announced that Biden was the president and, you know, that he has continued to say was rigged or the election was stolen or the election was uh, essentially false, which, you know, people like Kevin McCarthy uh, said, no, it's not true. Lynn Cheney said it's not true. Um, uh, so many others, Liz Cheney, excuse me, uh, there, there are so many others, not in his own party, but certainly people who have challenged that premise, and yet the premise continues to um, to infect the body politic. And I use that language advisedly, but I think that's pretty accurate, and that's more culpability. I think you've seen that McNamara, uh, is no, not uh, McCarthy, rather, excuse me, that McCarthy is now wanting to uh, not go along with a uh, independent investigation 
of the January 6th uh, insurrection. So That's right. And he went to Mar-a-Lago and he kissed the ring. And, you know, th th this is a very pragmatic view of, uh, as I've said publicly on my radio program, uh, the Republicans were trying to uh, get more con more people to vote for them, mainly Hispanics. Remember that? George W. Bush going after the Hispanic vote and feeling that he could be open to more open to immigration. Uh, it seems like uh, a kind of yesteryear that uh, almost fogs up in memory. The reality, maybe fog up, I'm thinking maybe of McNamara who started out writing about the fog of war. But there's also the fog of, um, of trying to come to grips with uh, what, what's actually occurred here. What's actually occurred here is the Republicans have realized that they have a huge constituency now because of Trump and they have loyal Trump supporters who they need if they're going to recapture the House of Representatives, uh, which is quite possible, by the way, in the midterms coming up. Remember Obama's defeat in the midterms. I do. Uh, and Biden's facing a lot of serious obstacles uh, with respect to immigration and many other things. Uh, even now, uh, with respect to Israel, one of the uh, remarkable things to me was the immense amount of Jewish support, particularly among Orthodox Jews, but nevertheless support for Trump because he was seen as being, which he was, pro-Israel, establishing a capital in Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, actually, to his credit uh, and the credit of his administration, to be fair about this, uh, reestablishing some sense of diplomatic uh, relations with Morocco and Sudan and the Arab Emirates, um, all of that I thought was very positive uh, and, and potentially uh, of a good nature in terms of brokering some kind of peace. But now we've gone back to this hideous kind of uh, outbreak of war again, or what amounts to war, even a civil war, or what appears to be on the brink of a civil war within Israel itself. Grim. Have you uh, encountered anti-Semitism personally in your life, Michael? Yes. As a young man, I did. Uh, how about as an adult? Well, <laughs> yes, I was, I mean, I was a public figure. And so, and I wrote about subjects having to do with Jewish uh, identity and wrote a book yes. uh, about Jewish humor and so forth. So uh, when you're out there, you know, you do uh, serve as a kind of magnet for uh, that kind of thing. And um, most of it was, um, was vile and ignorant, I think, is the best way I can characterize it. I'm sorry, I missed that. Most of it was what? Was pretty ignorant and vile for the most part. As, as I believe most prejudices uh, or, or bigotry of any kind. Were your children ever uh, attacked for who you are and what you speak about and, and what you stand for? Uh, fortunately, no. And I certainly don't think that uh, one's offspring should be res uh, held responsible for whatever the sins of the fathers may be. Well, I certainly agree with you, but we now have evidence. Uh, you know, this uh, politician, I guess he's a politician, lawyer, Scaramucci, uh, that worked for Trump for something like, what, eight or ten days, uh, has gone on national TV and stated that uh, because he has been critical of Trump, his entire family is being threatened, including his children. And that really got me wondering to what extent members of Congress 
uh, are in the same position and to what extent, if any, uh, their families are being threatened or they're concerned about their families being threatened and that's influencing their politics. Do you, do you know anything about that? I can't speak with any authority about that, but we know that uh, there are many people who have expressed exactly the kind of fears you're talking about. Uh, people not only in Congress, but people in, in journalism and so forth who have been critical of Trump and his administration. Uh, the zealots and the loyalists of Trump feel, uh, some of them, you know, very fanatical about this. And uh, that's the way they feel they want to operate. I mean, I don't remember, I'm, I'm not saying at all that it didn't happen, but I don't remember in my lifetime, and I'm 80, uh, politicians talking about fear of something happening to their families uh, as a result of their being critical of the other side of the aisle. And this, is, this is, seems like a first, but maybe not. I think it's uh, it's pretty new to um, American civilization and American culture. Unfortunately, I'd have to agree with that. So I, I promised you that uh, we we're going to talk about spiritual envy. And uh, of course, I got into it yesterday, as you heard a bit in my introduction. Uh, why don't you uh, lay out some of what got you into spiritual envy, what the book's about, and then I'll ask you some questions about it. I think what inspired the book uh, was a quote I read by Julian Barnes, a British novelist and uh, uh, quite a distinguished novelist, in fact, who said, I, I don't believe in God, but I miss him. And it got me thinking, um, did I believe in God? It was very important to me as a young man, as a boy especially. Um, and asking questions that, you know, one asks uh, in college and uh, dormitory discussions and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, is there a God and what about the presence of something spiritual in our lives? And um, I started sort of to come to the reasoning that I just didn't know. And um, that seemed to me to have a name for it, agnosticism. But agnosticism itself, I realized, hadn't been explored very much uh, as a philosophy, as an idea. And um, so I started really immersing myself into writings by um, ag so-called agnostic writers, um, but realized that agnosticism went back to traditions both in Western culture and, and Eastern or Asian cultures. It had to do with skepticism. That is the idea that you should always be questioning, even if you were a person of faith. The other thing was I had interviewed people like Sam Harris and uh, Richard Dawkins, um, and uh, Christopher Hitchens, who was a friend, uh, and they were all stone-cold atheists, and, I, and, and that was uh, interesting to me, but I thought, why be so certain about the non-existence when we know so little? We know so little about all that's out there. Um, and maybe the problem was an anthropomorphized God, or a God that was too close to our own lives that we felt had was watching over us and was uh, intricately or intimately involved in our lives, was also struck by the realization that um, religion, by those three names that I just gave you, Harris, uh, Hitchens, uh, and Dawkins, was really savaged. And I thought, there's something to be said for religion. Um, 
I mean, I realize that many wars have been fought and many fanatics and uh, crusaders and so forth have, uh, you think about radical Islam and so many lives have been lost and destroyed because in the name of religion, but also so many people have done good deeds and have uh, gone out and worked to ameliorate problems of poverty and sickness and uh, in the name of religion and because of their faith. So I felt that I wanted to reckon with those big questions. What is faith? How does one find it? Uh, what's the nature of faith uh, to have it, to not have it? And the thing that was rewarding about the book was the response I had from not only people who had no faith, but people who did have faith. One of the things that you, that you mentioned that really uh, caught my interest was you're talking about the vacuum created by having believed and giving up. I think that that's an important topic for many people uh, and what it's like. Talk to us a little bit about that topic of having believed and then given up and what happens. I think what happens for a lot of people is uh, a kind of uh, vacuum or emptiness or feeling of how do I fill up this need that I once filled up with faith and with belief. Uh, certainly many artists turn to art, uh, certainly seen that among many of the great literary figures. Uh, they look at literary art or certainly people who paint and who create music and so forth look at what they create as having transcendent qualities or people look to nature, they look to family, they look to um, their love of uh, many things, including perhaps animals and animal life. Um, we're talking about, I suppose, what you would call in your world of psychology, surrogate uh, for faith or substitutes for it or replacements for it or something along those lines. Um, and for many people, it's just the work that they do, I think. Uh, but there are many people who can't find an anchoring at all uh, and don't know what to do when, I mean, there are people, for example, lose faith because uh, a loved one uh, uh, dies, even though they prayed so hard for the loved one not to die. There are many people who lose their faith because they see, um, and this is always the big question for me, theodicy, that is not the odyssey, but T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y, uh, how, do, how do they explain, you know, evil in the world or how do they explain war and uh, uh, hurricanes and terrible tornadoes and uh, natural disasters uh, that take lives and that destroy property and so forth. Um, and ask the question, which was asked, frankly, after World War II by a number of Jewish theologians, where is God? Where was God in Auschwitz? And, uh, you know, what can fill that up for many people becomes a central question, almost in some ways a, a life or death question. See, for me, Michael, the very concept of God is a tactic. And it's a tactic that's created for domination by those who would dominate and leave the, lead the tribe. I think early on, this tactic of teaching people to look outside themselves for leadership, to look outside themselves for guidance, to look outside themselves for a moral code, for a way to live, was a, was a tactic. Because the leaders then 
sold, if you will, access to this great power to those that they wanted to lead or dominate. And that was the way that the the uh, the Egyptians uh, ruled 99% of the uh, of the population and thereafter the way that the kings uh, ruled because kings as you know as well as I were really nothing more or less than early gang leaders who accumulated enough power by leading a small gang to a larger gang to a larger gang until finally they got enough of a gang and they gave this they got the name king instead of gang leader and and they reigned and then once they had sold everybody on the idea that they're there by divine right see this outside presence that rules everybody then they won because people not only if they rebelled against the king as we the way our country did but it also meant rebelling against god and by that it was uh, that was much too much for anyone i think that's in part the reason why we can name so few slave rebellions that were successful in all of recorded history because ultimately you can marshal the people by bringing in god and do away with whoever it is that's rebelling against the system so i think the very postulating of the existence of it rather than the the alternative which would be that each of us has within us the wisdom to lead a principled if you will life or to know how to act I'm uncertain as to whether we really need much more of a guiding principle than do unto others as you would have others do unto you. If everyone did that, would that be enough? Or maybe do not do unto others as you would not have others do unto you. Oh, here, um, here. Yeah, here, here. And what you say about uh, seeing religion or God as a tactic uh, for rulers, I actually uh, have another book that I finished on the subject of honor and I think that there was always a sense that one had to honor the rulers because the rulers were closer to God and the rulers were divine in their authority that came and emanated from God or from the gods going back to polytheism uh, before uh, monotheism began to be hegemonic uh, as it's become. I think though that you know what you're raising is also a question of uh, of how religions were um, a kind of malware uh, for humanity. Um, I mean, secular beliefs should be in some ways enough, but you need some force behind those secular beliefs. You need Mosaic law said, you know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not covet, you know, and so forth. All of those things were a way to control maybe the id unfettered or something along those lines, because we had to live in community. You know, your remarks in the beginning of your show about uh, being a stalwart and supporter of community, communities have to live together uh, and they can't uh, uh, certainly abide the kind of savagery that a lot of human beings are capable of. And, and that's not only in terms of revenge, it's, it's in some instances just in terms of gratuitousness. So. What do you do to curb that kind of human behavior? I mean, certainly the kind of laws that are tied to religion 
which many are good laws, in fact. Uh, many have become uh, essentially the rudiments of our statutes and the laws that we live by and the laws that we conform ourselves to. They do have their roots in, in, in religion and in religious principles. So uh, it seemed to me that you are also, through religion, curbing human behavior and making it obedient in the sense that you're talking about. You know, I did some research on an African-American writer who at the time was not uh, recognized uh, as being as important as he is now. And that's Gene Toomer, Eugene Pinchback Toomer, who wrote a book called Cain, published in 1923, which sold all of 500 copies. Now it's become kind of an American classic. He was an African-American writer who was fascinating to me because he lived on both sides of the color line. He was able to pass for white and was part of the Harlem Renaissance. And he has a play in that collection, Cain. It's a, what was described as a frappe of, uh, of poetry and prose and uh, uh, prose poems, as well as a play way ahead of its time in some respects, kind of postmodern. But he has a character in there. There's a slave who said, um, the white people sin when they made the Bible lie. Uh, and when you think about the... <laughs> The curse of Noah and all the rest of the curse of Ham, really, Noah's son, and all of these ideas that uh, slavery is part of God's plan, and that was foisted upon you know, a whole race of people in the south of the United States, or anything being seen in terms of God's plan. I mean, right now, the two narratives in, uh, in the Middle East uh, are borne out by this notion. These are some, should be Semitic brothers. These are Semites, right? Jews are not the only Semites, Palestinians are Semites. They're fighting each other because they have totally different uh, views of God or Allah uh, or what their religious beliefs are telling them should be their precepts and what they should be adhering to and following. So there's a lot of, as, as many of those war atheist warriors say, there's a lot of uh, dreadful things that are the result of religion. But again, one of the reasons I wrote Spiritual Envy was to talk about some of the beneficent things that have occurred also and that need to be allied with religion and with religious principles. Would you say they need to be really aligned more with religious principles or could you not say the same thing about philosophy and that the rules and regulations of living can come out of philosophy which, which is more secular than religion? Well, you remember, I'm sure, all the disdain and uh, uh, certainly the strong uh, derogation of what was called secular humanism. There yes. was a while when that almost, those two words almost became like profane for many people in their utterances and in their uh, inveighing against what they saw as being godlessness. But secular humanism has a lot to recommend it, I think, as you're talking about. If you have a philosophy that's imbued with the notion that kindness is important, that charity is important, that decency, that equity, that all of those things matter. What religion does for many people, though, is it, it gives a kind of strength and power to those concepts. Um, for many people, they can accept those in a secular way and say, I don't need to have them allied to a higher power or to faith. I can believe in them for their own sake because they have value. Uh, but I, I think uh, religion brings a lot of people to sometimes a higher morality. And that's, it seems to me, a good thing. 
also makes them kill each other too <laughs> and, like, and destroy like, sorry and plunder and annihilate my my concern is the meta message again and the meta message being that you are looking outside yourself that you you're getting that power because of your belief in that act external system and i think that kind of belief system that the power is outside of you has wide-ranging implications for life i think it has wide-ranging implications for example for health and healing because in the same way we might look to religion people also then look to their doctors uh, and look to medicine outside themselves and miss out on great opportunities to sit down and look within themselves about what they're suffering from not to say they should never go to a doctor of course not not to say they should of course i would never say that or, or not to go for western medicine but they they lose the 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 intrinsic inherent power that we have inside of ourselves for all forms of of self-healing all forms of of uh, of happiness really if you will that is my concern it's, it's i understand your concern yeah and i think it's a valid concern uh nevertheless there are people who um uh, i'm thinking about and you mentioned my book spiritual envy i write about a movie called chariots of fire uh because i was struck by the fact that um it's it's about olympic runners uh uh in, in from the from the uk uh how one of them was almost felt empowered to god uh and there are those people who feel people abuse things and neglect what's their own internal power which i think is what you're talking about or give short shrift and ignore it um there's always that danger there's also the danger with religion of uh, i mean you mentioned donald trump did donald trump ever uh, attend church services i mean he stood outside of a church with a bible and so forth but in, in many of believers minds he was on their side because he was supposedly opposed to abortion and he was um talking about conservative values and putting people who are conservative on the supreme court which aligned with them in terms of their faith but i think if they realized what donald trump's faith may have really been compared to their faith uh they may have seen a terrible dissonance i'm was, sure they would have it by was the faith way, that was too, faith that was too steered by politics unfortunately and self-interest the th one of the things that I really got from that movie that was so helpful, Chariots of Fire, was when they go into the sprint at the very end, they throw their heads back. And I became a marathon runner at one time. And that was a very important thing to, to, to that little tip to throw your head back. Because what you do when you throw your head back is you create a straight pipe you know right down the trachea rather than this way it has the air goes in and then it has to make a turn and that little bit of not having to make the turn adds a, a tiny bit of oxygenation to the system and it was it was a great little tip and i loved the movie of course uh, as a runner 
Uh, getting back to... Uh, to... Excuse me, I have to say this, though. They're all, uh, we've known each other, as you say, for decades, but there are always new things to learn about you. I didn't know that you were a runner. I didn't know until recently that you had written work about dogs and the way they help in terms of therapy. Uh, I mean, I knew a lot of your avatars and incarnations, but uh, as I said, you are um, a man of multitudes. I, I gave my first paper on the use of canines in family therapy in 1969 at Western Psychological, and I brought Virginia Satir's poodle that she had given me as a present, and I carried it while I gave the presentation, and I've been involved with canine-assisted psychotherapy ever since. I always use dogs in my, in my practice. It's been, it's been a wonderful hobby and, and a wonderful connection. Right now, uh, Jolie and I live with five canines. It was for my 80th birthday, I fulfilled the dream. And we, have, we live with five do- uh, canines, all 100 pounds or more, uh, three Russian wolfhounds and two uh, uh, African lion dogs who are called Ridgebacks, Rhodesian Ridgebacks. It's, uh, it's, it's are like, there rules in Fort Bragg about having that many dogs? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't be Sorry surprised. Sorry to ask the question, but... Huh? There are rules about chickens. I know that. Oh, I'll tell you a quick story about chickens. You, 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 when I was, I don't know if you knew that when I lived in Tiburon for 30 years, my next door neighbor was Michael Savage. Did you know that? He was my next door neighbor. And um, in any event, one time, and I used to bump into him at the mailbox. Now, Michael Savage, as you know, his name is Michael Weiner from Brooklyn. And although he looks like a really tough guy and all the PR that he puts out with dark clothes and dark glasses and hat, in, in reality, he's a roly-poly a little Jewish boy. And uh, literally roly-poly little Jewish boy. And um, so we'd meet at the post at the mailbox sometimes and chat. And he, he would break. And I thought of you one time because I know that he was very critical of you. I remember you and I talked about it many years ago. He said something very nasty about you on his program. Uh, well, he actually uh, heckled me at a high school graduation. That's, at the high school graduation, I recall that. Yeah. Right. So he, we're, at the, we're at the post office box, and he brags to me about ratting out a neighbor who had a rooster and how proud he was that he called the police and the police came and made the guy get rid of the rooster. So there's your, 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 your Michael Savage story. He, enough said about him. But getting back to uh, atheism and agnosticism. So you talk about, you know, atheists have a real problem because they deny what can't be in any way proven. So they're really no different than believers who believe in something that can't be proven, right? They, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's almost a non-issue. They're saying that something doesn't exist that you could never in any way argue about or, or, or in favor of. But That's my, exactly I, the premise that I have. Pardon? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, say it again. No, I say that's that's a premise in my book that atheists yes. are believers. Also, they just believe in uh, in something that can't be uh, proven or disproven. Yes. So, tell me your thought on this position that I thought of in reading your book. Can I choose to not accept 
defining accept as to receive with favor. Can I not accept God and at the very same time not deny God's existence? And the answer is, why not? <laughs> That's, you know, that answer, that answer is like the guy up on the mountain, remember, who, who, who's sitting there in a loincloth and the fellow who's been waiting two years to see him, uh, you know, asks him the great question uh, about the meaning of life. And he says, it's, 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 uh, it's, 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 life is a wet pheasant. And the guy says, I've been waiting three years to see you, and I ask you the meaning of life, and you tell me life is like a wet pheasant? Is that what I came to hear? And the, and the, and the guru looks at him and says, you mean to say life is not a wet pheasant? Well, the other version of that joke is the guru says, okay, so it isn't. Okay, so it is. That's what but you're my, saying. My so response is a so, more tailored to your ideal that the individual should come to his or her own or their, you know, that's a popular pronoun now, politically correct pronoun, to their own assumption about what works for them internally. And if someone can live with the idea on both ends of the spectrum uh, simultaneously, then so be it. Yes. So where I'm coming from in trying that out for size is that I cannot I will not deny God's existence because it's an indefensible denial, as you pointed out so well in your book. But at the same time, I think I cannot accept God regardless because accepting God is a different activity than denying or believing in God's existence. Well, forgive me, Richard, you get into the whole question of what is God. Um, you're talking about, and I was certainly writing about, the traditional white-bearded male in the sky that we grew up with, who is supposedly looking over us and has an integral role in our lives. Um, there's too much of, of, of universe uh, that we live in, the galaxy that we live in, the innumerable and uh, infinite number of galaxies that are out there and planets which may support some form of life as we know it or don't know it, that we simply do not know about. And so that holds true, it seems to me, for whatever may be a creator or a presence of the spiritual nature, we don't know. Moving on. I've got so many questions to ask, but I'm going to switch completely now. I want to know something about how did you do four programs a week and read all those books? I mean, one of the things I learned from you 30 years ago when we chatted briefly is that you read the books. And so when I started interviewing, I read everybody's books and I read the books. I interviewed, I've interviewed many people who have said to me, they've been on national television and as they're going in to be interviewed, the interviewer is being handed pages of questions to ask them because they not only haven't read the book, 
They haven't even thought about the topic. They just go in and do it. Some pretty big time interviewers. But what you taught me was to read the book. And that was tremendous. It was tremendously valuable because in addition to doing a better interview, I got to learn what was in the book. It forced me to read the book, which was great. So in your reading, has it occurred to you that throughout all of history, we have hardly moved from the slave state that the Egyptians ran? Is it possible, Michael, that even in this day and age in America and 2021, that we are, that we're living in a disguised form of a slave state, that what we've done in effect is move the slaves off the plantation, all of us, so that we get our own little home, we get our own, we make our own whatever food, car, something. But basically what we're having to do is continue to work for the master in order to now pay for all the things that the master used to supply when we lived on the plantation? Uh, I would certainly push back on that kind of a metaphor, especially since slavery has so many different connotations in my mind. It means not only a master, it means that you have no freedom, that you are even beyond indentured, uh, you are owned, you are property of someone else. I mean, we may feel to some extent slaves to our work or to the ruling class or those kinds of things that you might be intimating, but slavery is a pretty uh, strong word. There's still slavery of the old variety uh, that I identify as slavery that goes on globally, uh, and um, it has not been abolished. But, you know, Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation uh, for a reason. He didn't want slavery as it existed in the United States and certainly as it existed across in the UK and and so many other countries to exist anymore here. We have a system where people feel enslaved, but if you're gonna talk about people as being slaves, who are the masters? Are they the ruling class? Well, a lot of those people feel that they're enslaved too. Um, And that they're, you know, uh, especially if they feel they have to keep producing and making money and all the rest of that, as opposed to what you were intimating before about those who have enough money for the next 20 generations and can sit on their laurels or sit in their vaults like Scrooge McDuck and just play with their money, Uh, then you have, you know, some some real notions of what we mean by liberation, what we mean by freedom. What are those concepts and how do they tie in with um, how we can at least understand human behavior better? Has human behavior advanced since... uh, Slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt, of course it has. Um, We're not uh, out there doing work at the behest or at the whip of someone who demands it of us and compels us to do it. Uh, Building the Sphinx uh, or building the, uh, there's a lot of, uh, by the way, controversy about who actually built the Sphinx or who actually built the pyramids, ongoing controversies historically and archaeologically. But nevertheless, those questions have to be asked. How much are we slaves to a work ethic? How much are we slaves to um, policy makers and those who hold the seeds of power? And um, But slavery is a, is a heavy word. I mean, just historically, it's a very heavy word to me. It means absolutely unmitigated absence of freedom, individual freedom. Michael, without the, the slightest, as I'm sure you know, 
insult meant. The way you described your father's life sounds to me like a form of slavery. He got up in the morning, he went to work, he worked all day, he came home, he had time to have something to eat, and before he knew it, it was time to go to sleep in order to wake up and then go to work again. That's what I got from your description. Is that close to the way you believe you described it? I think that's quite accurate. And I think slavery, uh, I think I felt my father was a slave to um, the work that he did and the life that he lived. It was a very blue collar, proletarian factory life. But I, I, I use that word advisedly and I don't take any insult that you're bringing this up about my dad. Um, Slavery has literal meaning and it has, you know, figurative and metaphoric meaning. Um, he was, I suppose, by any connotative value that we put into an enslaved life, he lived an enslaved life, but he was not a slave. And there's a big difference. In fact, I used to say my father was a peasant and my parents were peasants and my sister took great umbrage. My, my late sister who just passed away, unfortunately, uh, was was really um, ticked off at me for for calling them peasants, but they were kind of salt of the earth, you know, basic people, uh, almost elemental people. So the word was appropriate, but yet I understood what my sister was saying. She didn't want them to be seen in those conventional, literal notions of peasantry. Yes, that's because we've created hierarchy, and supposedly peasants aren't quote as good as other people or as. That's right. other. But getting back, so you say he was enslaved. To me, the difference between saying he was enslaved and he's a slave is that you, I might say he was a slave who was granted certain privileges, such as maybe a day off, or then eventually maybe two days off. But the majority of his life was taken up in service to those who paid him to show up and give his life. That's undeniable. Yeah, and I think uh, later on in life, um, when he was able to retire, I would say to him, uh, Dad, you could have done other things. Uh, he actually had a baccalaureate degree. And he was, I think, he was a, a bridge champion. Uh, that is the game bridge, the, the card game, uh, life master. And I said, you know, you could have been uh, a teacher of bridge or for that matter, a teacher. He, was, he loved science. Uh, he had a bacteriology degree. You could have been a science teacher. Uh, but you made those choices. Uh, you made those, he made those choices in part because he felt he needed to make uh, uh, a living and worked hard at making a living. But could he have uh, aspired to getting a teaching credential or something along those lines? I mean, there is free will involved in these kinds of decisions. People get stuck in jobs and they say, I should have done, I might have done, I could have done, you know, and that becomes a kind of uh, lifeline that wasn't taken. Uh, why my dad didn't take that road or decide, you know, to try to be a teacher or something, because I, I did. I thought, getting back to your question of nobility, I thought teaching was a noble profession and I pursued it uh, to become a professor. Am I, therefore, enslaved by masters, uh, deans and presidents of the university, or was I? I didn't think so. I felt I had, you know, kind of a, what my dad wanted me to have was a kind of a, 
a white collar uh, role as a teacher, as a professor. Uh, I was answerable to people. I had to comport myself in different, distinct ways and so forth, but uh, I wasn't enslaved. And I think, you know, my father made choices or lacked making choices. Well, teachers have always had a special, a special place in there throughout, throughout all of history. There's no, no question about that. Um, well, not only teachers, Richard, artists. Um, I mean, yes. you know, we, we have freedom in this country, uh, despite the fact that uh, there are many who claim that their freedoms are constantly being usurped, particularly people in the, in the world of art who want to express themselves in ways that are transgressive or that uh, are not acceptable. Um, there, there are freedoms here that uh, most uh, citizens can't even conceive of in most nations in the world. I want to know how you were able to conduct so many interviews every single week and do the thorough background that you have talked about that you did for them. Tell us something about how you manage that, please. Uh, it's never been a question of how, it's more a question of why, in my mind. <laughs> um, and, I, and I'm not being cute about things. I, I just feel that I was, I was always driven, driven to seek knowledge and driven <clears throat> ultimately to um, be a communicator of ideas and a storyteller and a journalist and, and an educator. And all of those things compelled me in different directions, but also along similar trajectories, which had to do with learning. Uh, it was valuable to me internally. It still is. Uh, it's something that uh, I felt I must do. I had to do. I was compelled to do. You know, I'm, I'm reminded of Beckett's line about, you know, I can't go on. I must go on. You know, sometimes you have that feeling in life that, um, but also about the things that you do, uh, whatever they may be. You are driven to do things sometimes by mysteries that you yourself don't understand or that are impenetrable. And I had a work ethic. I still have a work ethic. And I think uh, I owe that to some extent to my uh, my dad, you know, who uh, is a very different kind of work. He worked with his body. And fortunately, uh, I know you. this is of special interest to you. Um, when he had his first heart attack, a cardiologist friend of mine said, boy, it's good that your father did hard labor all his life because he has strong heart muscles. Otherwise, he'd probably be a dead man. Uh, and this was a cardiologist whose opinion I respected. Uh, I think there was truth to that. And uh, so he had what they used to call heroic heart surgery, had a bypass, and then had another heart attack later on. But I think it was that hard labor that probably saved him. I've done some labor, but I mostly labor through the mind, cerebral labor. And, but yet there's a work ethic certainly behind that. And, you know, you find the time to do things that are compelling to you, that are engaging to you. you just have I want more to I want more specifics, Michael. How many people would you typically interview every week? Well, when I started doing the forum program, it was five days a week, and it was two hours, so it was 10 hours a week. Um, How many people? Would... How many different people in those weeks? Hard to say, because some of them were one-on-one -on -one interviews, like you're doing with me, like you did with Dean, Adele. Uh, but a lot of them were um, panels, you know, where yes. I would have... A number of people and I'd have to um, absorb a lot of information and a lot of um, different sides of uh, uh, looking at various topics and uh, understanding them from multi in a multi-dimensional way but I love that challenge I mean you can't do it to some extent this 
kind of thing unless you have a passion for it, which I'm sure you do. You, you're inquisitive and you're curious and you want to find out about things. I had the privilege of interviewing some of the great thinkers and, and doers of our time, uh, as yes. well as a lot of ordinary people and people whom I respected for the uh, extraordinary things they did and the ordinary lives they lived. We unsung hero, heroic people uh, and people who deserved the limelight uh, or certainly deserved that moment of uh, attention for me. And it was always, you know, grappling with different ideas. I mean, I would talk about things that, you know, I would, <laughs> the classic example would be, I would talk about uh, nuclear physics, let's say. And this is not a, a topic that I'm uh, well educated in, but I have, you know, a layman's knowledge of certain kinds of things. And the challenge was through a layman's lens, understanding what it was important to understand and what it was important to perhaps have others understand understand or communicate or interview the person about so that the communication of ideas would come through. That was the primary, that was the sacred idea. And so um, I tried to be as well equipped and as well, uh, shall we say, um, well, as, as I almost said well-armed, but you know, certainly that's a good metaphor with knowledge uh, as I possibly could be. Well, your, your preparation speaks for itself. I'm trying to get into some of the details, such as your program was from 9 to 11, as I recall, uh, four or five days a week. Is that correct? The initial program was uh, five days a week from 9 to 11. And then uh, because of uh, a grant, it became four days and there was a separate Friday host. Uh, and then eventually... Um, we got uh, a woman named Mina Kim in uh, the 10 o'clock hour, and I just did the 9 o'clock hour as I began to sort of wean off the um, the grueling nature of two hours every day. But I would just, you know, the reality was I was constantly preparing. I mean, it's, it's like being a doctor on call or something. You know, you never know. Uh, it's a black hole. You never know how much you're going to have to learn or how much you're going to have to be prepared. Yes. And you just keep preparing and preparing. And if you're assiduous about it, uh, it can be infinite almost. It can be no end to it. So, well, tell us about that. You did the show from 9 to 11 for many years, five days a week. By, by what time were you then sitting at a desk or sitting somewhere and doing the research for the next day's program? And how long did that go on? And did it go on into the evening? I want, those are the details I'm wanting to know. <laughs> Uh, the answer to both is yes, I would start preparing almost right off the air. But I also kept up a teaching schedule. So uh, yes, on, on generally on Tuesday and Thursday afternoons, I would teach classes and I would do preparation into the evenings, every evening, including on the weekends. Uh, there was pretty much no let up. And, you know, when I think about people, now that I'm retired, I think about people retiring, although I am looking at other possibilities and <laughs> thinking of other things. But, you know, when, when, when people retire, like when my dad retired, and he retired on a pauper's pension, but that's another story. Um, he was um, he was ready to retire because he worked so damn hard, you know. Um, uh, well, I worked pretty hard, too, but it was not the same kind of work. It was not, you know, physical labor, like I've said. And I don't think that he really enjoyed his work and I did you know, I had the luxury and privilege of enjoying the work I did for the most part uh, so it made a great deal of difference it made a quantum difference 
And so um, retirement is of a different nature. I, I have friends who retired, you know, especially uh, physicians and, and people in, uh, in, in the private sector. I can't, couldn't wait to retire. Now I have all these things I wanted to do and I'm doing them and so forth. Well, a lot of my life was taken up by what I wanted to do, which was constant learning. And so I'm not sure how I'm going to fill that hole up, but you know, there are a lot of things to do in retirement. And um, like I said, I'm looking at what some people keep calling the next chapter, what that's going to be. Where I'm coming from in these specific questions about your schedule is, as you pointed out, I have many jobs myself. I mean, I, I, I just have a little tiny radio program one day a week, but I've had a full private practice. I started the chemical dependence program, Coke Enders. I've been running Wilbur Hot Springs for 49 years, you know, in writing and so on. So I'm a busy guy. But when I look at what you've done, and this is not blowing smoke in your ear in any way. Four or five days a week for an hour or two interviewing people, many of whom are authors, and reading those books, I had in my mind before you answered the question that you must have been at work almost all the time for the entire 27 years. And, it, and as you're stating, it sounds like, you know, that's really what it was. And that's a, that's a phenomenal a phenomenal commitment to learning and to preparing. And because when people listen to your program, Michael, I've talked to people listening to your program and they talk about you, about how easy you make it look, how, how natural you are, which you are because you're very real and you're authentic, which is what I I've looked up to. And, and it's given me permission just to be regular and not have a radio voice like Paul Harvey when he interviewed me on the other side. Remember, he had that radio voice and people had those voices. And, but the, the, I'm tipping my hat to you publicly because the, just based on my one day a week, five days a week is an, is an amazing accomplishment. It really is. And to do it for 27 years is... is uh, it's, it's just phenomenal. It's phenomenal. Sorry to correct you, 28 actually, but... Oh, thank uh, you. No, but, you know, one could ask you the same question. How do you do it? And, you know, because you're juggling a lot, juggling a lot more than I uh, juggled, even with teaching and, uh, and broadcasting and, and writing books. Um, but again, a lot of this has to do with the ministry of drive. I mean, both you and I uh, are probably driven in ways that is not entirely understandable, uh, despite being introspective and navel gazing sometimes uh, to a fault. <laughs> I'll tell you a little bit about how I do it. I have different desks for different jobs. I have a desk for Wilbur Hot Springs. I've got a desk for the radio. I've got a desk for my private practice. I've got a desk for, for I've got, a, my wife says I've got more than anything else I have desks. So I know when I go and sit at a certain desk, what job I have to do and what I'm, what I'm going to sit down and get to. <laughs> Whatever works. Huh? Whatever works. Whatever I don't know works. how you find any room with all those desks and all those dogs. Where, how do you find room in your house? <laughs> I, I added a little. When you come back up with Leslie, you can see what we added, including, by the way, we now have a chicken farm uh, right here on the property with 65 chickens. We're raising organic eggs. Um, is there anything... Is there anything you want to add or leave us with, with regard to spiritual envy 
and your quest for for meaning and your well, quest with regard for... to spiritual envy, I just uh, I think I can say uh, I had a friend who said, Michael, this is this is a wonderful book, but it's not going to be a bestseller because you don't have answers. And really, the the pith of the book is um, there may not be answers, but I still think it's just like learning. I still think people need to and ought to seek. I think of you as a seeker. I think of me as a seeker. Uh, it's not only our curiosity and our passion for learning and knowledge that perhaps leads us, but also it's it, the, the search itself is worth it. So whatever that may amount to for anybody, if there's a dollop of wisdom in uh, what I'm saying, uh, keep the quest and uh, uh, don't necessarily think that you'll find answers because if you do so much the better. I mean, I was hoping I would find a mystical experience or something that would set me into the uh, numinous and into some kind of spiritual realm that I could feel comfortable with. Uh, the, the book title says it all. I, I was envy of those who did have spiritual grounding and did have faith. But I think you can be a spiritual person without answers. And I think you can perhaps continue to seek answers even if you don't have them. If you have the answers, just don't try to foist them onto anybody else. My, my, my one wish for your book that I wish was different is I wish you would have dedicated more space to the role of psychedelic medicine in the spiritual journey and in the quest for information and knowledge. And uh, because I believe that there's a, a strong possibility that they are a tool uh, that's going to be extremely helpful, but we're going to have to find out now that the government in its non-wisdom is, is allowing a bit more university research into these topics. Uh, we'll see what comes down the pipe. Uh, I'm going to make a comment about agnosticism uh, to sort of end the program, but before I do, I'm going to tell you that you're going to end the program after I make my comment, and I'd like you to end it with one of your favorite jokes. So if you'd be willing to do that, uh, would you be willing to do that? Sure. It's always, okay. a, it's always difficult deciding what a favorite joke is or isn't, but sure. Well, it doesn't have to be a favorite. It could just be, be a, a joke that you like. But here's my, here's my summing up comment about agnosticism. I think you agnostics have it made, totally made, because if God exists, then the God who created you will rejoice in your uncertainty. And if God does not exist, you were spared a lot of time, energy, and money of devotion. So either way, you've got it made. That's, uh, you're going back way in to Blaise Pascal and other philosophers who took a similar point of view. Um, actually, there's a joke that comes to mind. Maybe Malcolm Gladwell's right. The thing that comes to mind initially should be the thing given deference to. Um, this isn't necessarily a favorite joke of mine, but it, it certainly um, speaks volumes about what we've been talking about vis-a-vis -vis God. It's about um, uh, a woman who um, lives an extraordinarily devout and pious life and does everything according to the books and according to the teachings of her faith. The faith doesn't have to be specified. And her children convince her, because she's at that age where things are starting to 
not necessarily look as good as they did, that she should have plastic surgery. And she thinks it's vanity to do that, but her kids tell her, you know, you need a new, you've been widowed for so many years now, you need a new lease on life. Uh, and she goes along with her children and decides to have the plastic surgery, facelift and so forth. Uh, and she comes out of the surgery and gets hit by a car uh, and dies and ascends to heaven. And there is God on his throne and his magnificence. And she says to God, I, I'm here. I'm glad to be in heaven and I'm glad to be welcomed by you. But the reality is I was looking toward kind of a new lease on life with this plastic surgery. Why did you have me killed by that car that struck me? And Dad said, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I asked you to finish with a joke you selected, but I take that back. I want you to finish with a joke, a favorite of mine, of yours, the, and then we'll finish. And that's the joke about the little boy who goes fishing with his father. Will you tell that joke? Well, wait, there are a couple of versions of that joke. The one uh, about fishing, no fishing allowed. Well, that's, um, it's actually no swimming allowed, I think you're thinking of. And it's with his grandfather. At least that's the way it's narrated in my book. Okay. Um, I, I'm sorry to, to be so punctilious, but the reality is sometimes the narratives uh, get confused because there's so many versions of, of different jokes of this sort. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a boy and his grandfather. It's one of those jokes that speaks to me of transgenerational love and uh, and also the way language changes and I had to go into deconstruction of all these jokes, which can be a little too academic, and I apologize for that. Oh, but, I loved you doing that. I loved that. I feel I, I, I got the biggest kick out of you doing that. I told you that when I interviewed you a few years ago, because I, I, have, I have concerns about Jewish humor and the amount of self-criticism and, and, and th that goes on, and we talked about it. But let's, let's get back to the, to the fishing or the swimming. Well, the joke uh, is that uh, a grandfather and his grandson uh, go for a walk and they see a sign and it says in huge letters, no swimming allowed. And then in even larger letters on top of that sign is another sign that says no swimming or fishing, if you prefer, allowed with exclamation marks. And the grandfather says to his grandson, come on, we're going to go for a swim. And it's important that he says it in that dialect with the accent, a swim because he's obviously from the old country. And uh, the, the, the grandson says, Zadie, Grandpa, look, the sign, it says no swimming allowed. It says it twice, no swimming allowed in big letters. And the grandfather says, no, it says no swimming allowed. No, swimming allowed. <laughs> I love that joke. Yeah, that's Michael, a joke to love. I'd love to talk to you some more. We've been on for almost an hour and a half. Thank you very much for giving your time today and for being with me. I, I really appreciate it. I, I hope it's given you a bit of uh, a good feeling as well. Uh, well, it's always uh, good to talk to you because you are a thinker and you are someone who uh, mulls over and meditates on a lot of things. Uh, and it shows in your work. So uh, let me give you kudos on that score and hope that you will continue. I think you're enlightening a lot of people and... Uh, you know, giving your own take on so many things, which is valuable. Good. I'll be, I'll be in touch. I want to hear about your next career. We'll get you on, on air again. And maybe you'll give me some 
ongoing tips about how I can do even better on my radio program. Well, I'm thinking also of, uh, if, if I don't know about careers, but let me look into more desks as a possibility in my life now. It's a good answer. Okay. Well, thank you again, Michael. And thank, thank you. you all for joining me for today's lovely broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And a special thanks to our producer, Charlie Deist, and our IT specialist, David Springer, in Kansas City, Missouri, who working together as a team, they make this broadcast possible. Uh, the preceding program was brought to you, by the way, by Thanksgiving Coffee. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif from Brooklyn, is a social worker and political activist who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. How did he do it? He did it by getting them some of the money that's made from coffee. Before him, they didn't get very much at all. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends, which I drink, and he has sued adding a CBD blend, which some of you will like. Paul donates 20% of his internet sales of the three special blends to the COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect, protect California's North Coast from COVID. So go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy some mind, body, health, and politics coffee, and support the COVID Response Network, which spares injury, saves lives, and serves as a model for other community-based health programs around the country. Please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next broadcast. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for, and it's essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 